It's an act of resistance against the darkness and the brokenness that surrounds us, against a culture and a world that tells us there is no hope. Um, it's a reminder that God is always up to something. And so um, with that, I want to get into God's word today. Uh, if it's your first time here at Citizens, uh, we're in a series called The Names of God, where each week we're, we've been looking at a different name uh, through which God reveals himself to us in scripture. And the name we're looking at today is a little bit difficult to pronounce, um, but it's the name um, Jehovah M. Kadesh, okay? M. Okay? M. Kadesh. Okay? Say that with me. Jehovah M. Kadesh, okay? And the name means the Lord who sanctifies, okay? You pull that one out in community group and they will respect you. They will, um, okay? Jehovah M. Kadesh. Um, so turn with me to the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 20. Uh, it's the third book of the Bible. Uh, most people who've ever tried to read uh, the Bible from cover to cover know exactly where Leviticus is because it's the book that always ruins your Bible reading plan every year. Um, we get through Genesis, no problem. Exodus is pretty nice. Uh, but Leviticus is usually when you're like, nah, I can't do it. Um, you know, it's over because it just feels so disconnected um, from our modern reality. You know, there are all these kind of weird rituals and purity laws um, that really don't make sense to us. And because of that, I think Leviticus often gets a bad rap. But when you kind of peel the layers of the book, you realize that underneath the layers of Leviticus, you get this beautiful picture of God's holiness and really his desire and his heart to provide a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his presence. Um, if you're a Bible nerd, here's a cool little nugget. And, and this is why... Um, reading the Bible sometimes from beginning to end is really awesome because you can kind of make connections that you don't see otherwise. Um, the book that comes right before Leviticus is the book of Exodus. And if you know, the book of Exodus is all about how God rescues his people uh, from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and then uh, he invites them to live in a covenant relationship with him. And he does this through his servant Moses. Well, you know how the story goes. The, the people of God rebel against him. You know, they're, they start worshiping other gods. They violate his commands. And, and by the end of the book, their relationship is so broken that Moses himself cannot enter the tabernacle they've set up because the presence of God is there, okay? And the way Leviticus kind of picks that up is it opens with God speaking to Moses outside the tent. So God is in the tent speaking to Moses outside the tent. Well, the book of Leviticus happens, and then the book of Numbers opens with God speaking to Moses inside the tent. Okay, so again, like, it's this, at the end of Exodus, Moses is standing outside the tent. At the beginning of Numbers, Moses is standing in the tent. Something happens in Leviticus where God fills that gap, where God finds a way for corrupt, sinful human beings to live in his presence. And it's really remarkable um, how that happens. And so as you read it, um, I think it's really important to kind of understand this. Um, you know, and, and it's easy to read Leviticus um, and, and, and kind of think to yourself, why do the Israelites have to go to such great lengths to live in God's presence, right? Why, do, why doesn't God just forgive them and move on? You know, why, why, why are there all these um, purity laws, why are there all these cleansing rituals, you know, why, why do they need special priests to mediate on behalf of them, you know, everything starts to feel excessive and over the top, but if you're thinking this, it probably means that uh, we don't fully grasp God's holiness. 
it, it probably means we take God's holiness like, uh, you know, lightly. God can't just overlook wrongdoing and just move on. Can you imagine if God uh, looked upon all the egregious human rights violations that are happening in the world at this very moment and he said, eh, it's not a big deal, let's just forgive them and move on? Like, what hope would those experiencing injustice and oppression have if God were like this? God cannot, in his holy nature, act unjustly. He can't just overlook wrongdoing. And this is both comforting and utterly terrifying for sinners like you and me. You know, it's that saying, we can't live without God, but we can't live with God. Right? And the Israelites understood this. Anytime in the Old Testament, um, anytime someone encountered God's holiness, one of three things happened. They either died, they fell on their face, face down, or they immediately started hating themselves. Okay? Like, God's holiness always elicited a reaction. If you remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is in the temple beholding God's holiness, and the first thing he says is, Woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. In the book of Job, Job says, Job encounters God. He says, I've heard of you, but now that I've seen you with my eyes, I hate myself. Right? Um, you ever kind of like um, meet someone who's like really good at the thing you think you're good at? And at some point, it's not even inspiring anymore. You just start hating yourself. Right? Like anytime I start to think that I'm getting the hang of preaching, you know, I just listen to a Tim Keller sermon and I'm like, I am the worst communicator in the history of communications, right? Like, there's just like this sense in which like they are so different from you. They are on a different stratosphere. God's holiness is God's utter otherworldliness, his transcendence, right? When we say God is kind, we're not saying God is kind the way we say our friends are kind. God's kindness is a holy kindness. It's on a different level. When we say God is just, we're not thinking about justice the way we think about justice because God's justice is a holy justice, okay? Now, I want to be very careful when I say this because I know many of us grew up in legalistic church environments where God's holiness was, was weaponized in a way uh, to get us to behave in certain ways, right? So I want to be careful when I say this, but I do want to say that something that I've been realizing in the church um, especially in recent years, is that the pendulum has kind of swung completely to the other direction where we've really lost that deep reverence for God's holiness, right? I don't think we, we kind of come to church and we feel that weight that we're standing on holy ground, you know, and, and because we live on this side of the cross, um, you know, and, and it's great that we live on this side of the cross because we don't have to come to church and worry that we're going to be struck dead because of unrepentant sin, okay? Like, that would be terrifying. Um, so, it, it, you know, because of Jesus' life and his sacrificial death, it's great news that nothing now can separate us from the love of God. But if you're wondering why sometimes you come on Sundays and you hear... Um, you know, the news of God's grace and acceptance, this news that should be the most amazing news you hear all week as you're constantly living in a culture that is so performance-driven and image-driven. If you're wondering why, when you come to church, that message does nothing for you, might I suggest that maybe it's because you have not fully grasped God's holiness. 
Maybe we really don't know just how short of the mark we are. Maybe we don't really understand just how much debt we've incurred that was wiped clean. Because I guarantee you if we did, it would change the way we worship. It would change the way we walk around. It would change the way we live our lives. It would change everything. Okay, so we have to understand that all these rituals and guidelines and practices we find in Leviticus, as strange and unnecessary as some of them feel, we have to understand they are ways for God to maintain his holy justice and still be in relationship with sinners. It's not God's way of oppressing his people. It's God's way of living with his people. It's God's way of freeing his people, okay? Now, I promise I'll actually read the text. Um, I just need to understand the, uh, us to understand this because this is the central theme of Leviticus, to be holy as God is holy, to be set apart, to be marked by a different set of values, to live in a way that confuses the world, to live in a way where we organize our lives that reflects God's character, Right? And everything you see in this book is God intentionally setting his people apart from the people they're going to be living with. He says, look, you're going to get to the promised land. There are going to be all these people participating in child sacrifice. Not you. You're going to be different. He's like, in the land you're going to, there are going to be people who sleep with whoever they want, whenever they want. There are going to be people sleeping with their own family members. Not you. You're going to be different. You're going to be holy as I am holy, and people are going to know who I am through you. And at the very center of this book, we find these two verses that sums up everything God is trying to communicate to his people. And it's Leviticus 20, verses 7 to 8. It's going to be on the screens. I'm just going to read this. It's going to be from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and says this. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am Jehovah Mkadesh. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Okay? Now that word sanctify, translated from the Hebrew word Kadesh, is a theological word you may have heard a lot in the church. And really all it means is to make something holy. To make something clean to purify something, to set something apart and make it sacred. It's the same word used in the book of Genesis uh, when it says God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. God kadeshed the seventh day. Okay, He sanctified it as a day of rest. You know, all the other days, it's not that the other days were bad, right? If you remember in creation, God creates and he looks upon his creation and every day he calls it good. But only the seventh day, does God Kadesh? It's only on the seventh day that he Kadeshes it and he makes it holy. He sanctifies it as a day of rest. And so when we read here that God sanctifies us, what we're basically saying is that God is turning us into a people of rest. He's turning us into a people of sanctity and holiness, people who live in the world but are set apart from the world, people who are holy as God is holy. And this is not just a theme in Leviticus. It's a theme that is woven throughout the entire Bible. If you remember in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, verse 3, we, we read that it is the will of God that you should be sanctified. It is the will of God that you should be holy. You know what question I get the most 
from our church, this church in L.A. in 2022, is I wish God would just reveal his will. I get that question more than any other question. I wish God would just tell me if the person I am dating is the person I should marry. I wish God would just tell me if I'm supposed to be in L.A. or if I'm supposed to move. I wish God would just tell me if I'm supposed to take this job or that job. I wish God would just make his will clear. And I don't always say this because I don't want to be offensive, but I always think this. I always think, but he does make his will clear. I don't know how much more clear it can be than it is the will of God to make you holy. But you see, we don't like that answer because we think it is the will of God to make you happy. We think it is the will of God to make you successful. We think it is the will of God to make sure you are in a certain financial position. That is never what God says his will is. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about your personal happiness being the ultimate will of God. The end goal of life is not to be happy, but to be holy. And the great paradox of this is that we would say that true happiness, true joy, and true satisfaction can only be found in a life marked by holiness. So let me put it this way. If you believe the end goal of your life is your happiness, then you will always be left wanting more. Because you will gauge every relationship, every job, every situation by how happy that thing or person makes you feel. You will convince yourself that you are married to the wrong person if at some point your spouse no longer makes you happy. You will convince yourself that you are in the wrong industry at some point if your job no longer makes you feel happy. You will convince yourself that God doesn't have your best interests in mind if one day you wake up and you do not feel happy. But your personal happiness was never promised to begin with. Last time I checked, our text today does not say, I am the Lord who makes you happy. It says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. It does not say, I am the Lord who makes you successful or gives you everything you want. It says, I am the Lord who makes you holy. That's what God promises, and that's what he'll do. God is not in the business of helping us achieve our personal goals. He's in the business of turning us into people who look like him. Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite authors and theologians, says, the most important thing about your life is not what you do, but who you become. Let me read that again. He says, the most important thing about your life is not what you do, but who you become. But you see, we have it all backwards, right? Because I know I'm guilty of this. Anytime I say, man, so-and-so is thriving, so-and-so is winning in life, you know what usually I'm talking about? I'm talking about what they do. I'm talking about what they've achieved. I'm talking about their accomplishments and their accolades. And we all do this. When's the last time you assessed your own life not by how much was in your bank account or by your relationship status or the position you held in your company, but by the type of person you were becoming. I don't know how many of us do that. When was the last time you assessed the quality of your life by looking at yourself and saying, am I a more gentle person today than I was two years ago? Am I a more patient person? Am I a more loving person? Am I a more generous person? No, we don't do that. We usually say, I'm still in the same position I was two years ago. 
I'm still single. Or I'm still in the same position. I haven't moved up in my company. I'm still a middle manager. And we say, that means my life sucks. But you see, our personal happiness, your external success is not of much interest to God. What God cares about is that you're becoming a person of love, a person of patience and generosity and compassion because that's who he is and it is his will to make us like him. I think often we think that the gospel ends with the cross. No, no, no. That's where the gospel begins. The cross is the beginning of a new story and a new life, and it's God turning us into people like him. In the Bible, you'll see salvation spoken of in three tenses, and this doesn't always come out in the translations, but we have to understand this. In the Bible, you get three tenses. Sometimes salvation is spoken of in the past tense, right? What Jesus has done, that by faith in him and who he is and what he's done, that you're declared righteous. You are safe and secure. There's nothing you need to do. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. This is what we would call the doctrine of justification. It's done, period. There's nothing you need to do. Sometimes we see salvation talked about in the future tense, that one day you will be saved, that one day we will see Jesus face to face, that everything that is broken will be right again, God will fix everything, and not only will, be, will we be free from the penalty of sin, but now we will be free from the presence of sin. There will be no death, there will be no destruction, there will be no crying or weeping anymore. This is what we would call glorification. But the Bible also talks about salvation in the present tense. Not that you've just been saved, not that you will be saved, but that every day you are in the process of being saved. That every day you are in the process of growing up and maturing into this new identity you've been given. This is what we would call sanctification. That every day you are being made holy. You are perpetually being set apart and cleansed and purified. So the best way I can illustrate it is like this. On my wedding day, I became a husband. I signed a piece of paper that said Carol and I were officially married. I did not walk one day as a husband. I did not prove myself to be a good husband, but I was a husband. Done. But I would say even 10 years into marriage, I can honestly say that I am still in the process of becoming a husband. Every day I'm learning what it means to live into those vows that I made on my wedding day. And all of it is a gift of God's grace. This is what sanctification is. God doesn't just rescue us from slavery and save us. He then teaches us how to live as a saved people. He teaches us how to live as free set apart to do good works which God prepared for us in advance to do as we read in Ephesians 2 verse 10, okay? So, maybe you're thinking, okay, this is great. I wanna, be, I wanna become a person of love. I wanna be set apart. I wanna become a person of compassion. How does sanctification happen? How does God do this? How does he transform us into his likeness? And let me give us three things, okay? He does it in stages, he does it in struggle, and he does it by his spirit. Okay, I haven't brought out alliteration in a long time. So he does it in stages, he does it in struggle, 
and he does it by his spirit. Okay, so first, in stages, what do I mean by that? We often think a person becomes spiritually mature overnight. No, no, no. Sanctification is a lifelong process that involves multiple stages. And the Apostle Paul was extremely cognizant of this. If you read his letters, even in his letter to the Corinthians, when he says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it, right? He's acknowledging that everyone is in a different stage in their spiritual journey. He's saying some of us are infants, we need milk. You know, some of us are toddlers, we can start transitioning to, you know, solid food. I know we have our youth students in here, and some of us are spiritual um, adolescents, teenagers, where we're wrestling with these big questions of faith, and some of us are adults. And I think we need to be honest about what stage we're in and be patient with ourselves as we work through that stage. Now, here's, here's a caveat. One thing as we assess the stage of maturity we're in, I think there's a great temptation to equate spiritual maturity with religious practice. Right? And, and churches do this all the time, that they say, oh, he's such a mature believer because he leads a community group. She's such a mature believer because she serves in our children's ministry. Right? We make holiness and maturity about behavior, right? about what people do. Man, that person is so holy. They don't curse. They don't drink. They read the Bible. They don't sleep around. Right? They don't cheat on their taxes. And yes, all these things, why did you guys laugh? There was a, <laughs> it's like, we all cheating on our taxes? Or, uh, I don't know. Um, okay, like nobody laughed with any of the other things, but okay, interesting. All right. Um, anyways, you know, you would hope, right, this is what believers would become. But the great danger of this, right, the great danger of this is that we make holy something you do rather than someone you are. Holiness is not about behavior modification. It's about actually becoming like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, talking like Jesus, responding to criticism like Jesus, caring about the things Jesus cares about. And sometimes, honestly, you need to take breaks from religious activity to do that. A lot of times we see a community group leader, right? And we, you know, let's say a community group leader says, you know what, I need a break from community groups because I want to be more present with my family. And a lot of times we see that as a step backwards. No, that's a step forward. Because they're learning how to be more present for the people God has entrusted them with. Okay? I know my community group director is really nervous right now. So do not, if you're a community group leader, stick around for the spring and then maybe you can take a break in the fall. Okay, but... Um, you know, conversely, you can go to seminary and get all the theological knowledge in the world and know so much about God and still be a spiritual infant. You think just because I'm up here and just because there are pastors who have a degree and who can do all these spiritual things that automatically that makes them spiritually mature? I think 2020, we saw a lot of pastors who you realized were extremely spiritually immature, whose growth was stunted. You can be the most externally religious person out there and still be a spiritually infant, so we have to be careful how we assess what stage we're in, okay? Now, second thing I'll also add is that just because sanctification happens in stages 
doesn't necessarily mean it looks like a straight line from point A to point B. I know there are some people, because of how we're wired, you hear that, okay, sanctification and stages, and automatically you're like, okay, how do I get to the next stage? You know, how do I move from milk to solid food? Like, tell me what to do and let me get there. Um, and that's not how sanctification works. You know, sometimes, like, it feels like we're doing really well. You know, it feels like, oh, man, like, my heart is heavy for the things God's heart is heavy about. Things are going well. My, it feels like I'm learning how to be more sacrificial in my marriage and in my relationships. And other days, it feels like we're back to square one. You know, parents who have young kids understand this extremely well. They, there's something called sleep regression, right, where you think like your child is like moving along and your child is being sleep trained and everything is working out well and all of a sudden something happens and it's like, it's like they're back to the early days, right? They're, they're waking up every two hours and you're like, what is going on? And that's what sanctification sometimes feels like, but you have to trust the process, the process that oftentimes is slow and messy, Leviticus is set in the wilderness. It wasn't a straight line from Egypt to the promised land. There were setbacks, there were detours, uh, there were roadblocks, and God was using all of these things to get them to where he wanted them to go. And so not only do you need to show yourselves grace, because, you know, a lot of times we're not where we want to be, and you need to show yourselves grace because the process is slow and messy, but you need to learn how to show others grace when they're not where you want them to be, right? We love the idea that sanctification is slow for us. We hate the idea that sanctification is slow for our wife, right? Or for our mom or for our dad or for our brother or sister, right? We want them to be perfect tomorrow. Sanctification doesn't work like that. We have to understand that it takes time and looks different for everyone. Okay, so number one, it happens in stages. Number two, sanctification happens in struggle. This one is so hard to stomach because it's the idea that the harder our lives get, the more God's will is being done in us. In the book of James, we read, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There is nothing that will produce Christ-like character more than struggle and suffering. There's no way around it. I guarantee you, I want you to go find someone this week that you respect, that you look up to as a mentor, that you say, man, like I would love if in five, ten years, like, you know, like my life looked like that person's. I want you to go ask that person at what, in what season of their life they felt God most tangibly transforming them, most tangibly working in their life. I guarantee you they will give you a season of struggle. They will talk about a difficult relationship they had to navigate. They will talk about being jobless. They will talk about having to grieve the loss of a loved one. There is nothing that will draw us closer to the person of Jesus than a season of struggle or suffering. There's no way around it. You will not learn how to be a more forgiving person unless you've had to forgive someone. You will not learn what it means to be humble unless you've had that urge to not say sorry, but you did anyway. 
You will never learn how to be patient and gentle unless you've ever resisted the urge not to react to someone in anger and rage for something they've done to you. In 2 Timothy 3.12, we read that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some of you. Everyone. Everyone. And it's not that God himself causes suffering, but as the Bible says, what the enemy means for evil, God means it for good in order to bring about the present result. And this should be so comforting for those of us who find ourselves in a season of suffering or in a season of difficulty or struggle because it means God is up to something. It means God is doing something. It means God's will is being done in your life. When you think about the Apostle Paul and all that he endured, being beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and yet somehow he's able to say things like we're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And then later on in, in verse 16 of Corinthians chapter 4, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, I watched a video a few weeks ago of a letter written by a Christian woman living in North Korea right now. And many of you know the horrible atrocities that have gone on in North Korea. We have people in our community actively engaged in the work of bringing these issues to light and serving those in need there. But there's a line in the video that just wrecked me. And in the video, this woman is talking about everything she's had to endure. And she says this. She says, our suffering must appear as if we live a cursed life. However, we see it as a blessing because it's a shortcut to the Father. Our suffering must appear as if we live a cursed life. However, we see it as a blessing because it is a shortcut to the Father. Mature Christians understand that the road to becoming holy as God is holy is a road marked by suffering and struggle. And it's not that dealing with these things aren't excruciatingly difficult, but mature Christians have the ability to welcome these things as opportunities to have a shortcut to the Father, to know what he's like, to experience his love in a different kind of way. Um, one of my favorite quotes is a quote by author Matt Smethart, and he says, one sign that you've encountered God is that you walk with a limp, not with a strut. I love that so much. You look at people who are spiritually mature and they all walk with a limp not with a strut, because they've been through things. And you know they've been through things. So sanctification happens in stages. It happens in struggle. And finally, and most importantly, it happens by the Spirit. You know, um, I think when you read um, verse 7 in Leviticus 20, it's a bit scary at first, because it says, Consecrate yourselves and therefore be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and, command, and do them. And you start to feel like, okay, wait. 
Is the work of sancti sanctification something that's on my shoulders? Like, do I have to do X, Y, and Z to be holy? And this is why it's so reassuring that verse 8 ends with the assurance that God is the one who sanctifies. He says, I am Jehovah Mkadesh. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And listen to this. It says, Which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If the story of the Bible teaches us anything, it's that human beings are incapable of becoming holy as God is holy. And the worst thing you could do after hearing this sermon is to go out and just try to be holier, whatever that means to you. To try to be a more loving person, to try to be a more forgiving person, to try to be a more generous person. You can't be holy without the Holy Spirit. We need a new heart. And here's the good news. Whereas before Jesus, God's presence and his holiness were contained outside of us. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, God's presence and holiness now dwells inside of us. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Paul doesn't say, I just live in a Christ-like way, or I strive to be holy like Christ is holy. Paul says, Christ lives in me. Put another way, the Christian life is not a matter of trying to behave more like Christ, it's actually allowing Christ to live in and through us. It's beholding Christ so that the power of Christ is manifested in and through us. This morning, if you're here today and you just feel like you're so far from where you need to be, you're so far from, from being the, the son you need to be or the husband you need to be or the father or mother you need to be, if you're dealing with the same sins or you're struggling to be faithful at work or at home, I want you to remember the name Jehovah Mkadesh. That you would remember that this God who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. That God does not make mistakes. That we may fail we may regress, we may feel like we're falling backwards and we're moving in the opposite direction, but God does not make mistakes. And God is at this very moment sanctifying us and making us like him. And even when we fail, we can know with assurance that God looks upon us with love. And he says, I'm still so proud of you and I'm still gonna carry you and I'm still going to hold you till the end. Let's pray. God, I know that for many of us, this life is, is so hard. Not only are we uh, constantly um, made aware of the things that are happening outside, um, you know, out in the world and in our communities, um, but we also look at our own lives, and we also look at our own lives, and it can be so discouraging because it feels like transformation is happening at a snail's pace or not happening at all. We're still carrying around the same baggage we were carrying around five years ago. Uh, you know, we're still... 
uh, grieving the same things we were grieving, you know, we're still struggling with the same sins. And, and for many of us, it can be just so discouraging because we feel like we're failing. But I pray that for those of us who are in that space this morning, you would remind us of your name, that you are the Lord who sanctifies us, that you are Jehovah Mkadesh, that you are the Lord who is perpetually setting us apart, that you are the Lord who is doing the work by your spirit to make us more like you. And I pray that that would be so freeing for us to be able to look at our trials, to be able to look at our suffering, to be able to look at the roadblocks and the setbacks and all the detours that we've experienced in our lives and to see them as gifts of grace meant to draw us deeper into your presence and to make us more like you. Thank you, Father, for your love, for your sustaining grace and your mercy. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.